Hi, everyone. Welcome to Mystics and Molder, a comedy podcast to the intersection of faith and popular culture. I'm Sarah, she, her, hers. I'm Maeve, she, her, hers. And today we will be talking about fan fiction, and we have two lovely guests with us. Would you two like to introduce yourselves? I'm Grace, she, her, hers. And I am Will, they, them, theirs. There we go. That's the right order. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both for being so willing to talk about fanfic with us today. I am so excited because I know pretty much nothing about fan fiction except for the few things that we have already talked about before recording. So I'm excited to hear all about it. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Good to I have think- two fellow Presbyterians oh. who know much more about fanfic than we do. I yes. feel like there is like a tier, like Grace would be way, way, way above all of us. But uh, that's why Grace, that's why you're yeah. here. Grace is in the stratosphere at this point, essentially. And if I could be like underground, that's where I would be in like the fanfic knowledge. It's like the fanfiction bunker. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Where there's little to no fan fiction, and I'm confused in what's going on on the surface. <laughs> That's where I am. Maeve, like would I'm you... Like a worm in the grass, then, if, I, if we're using this, like, earth metaphor. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, there, but not really. So, like, space is where fanfic is, and Grace is just... Grace is, at this point, fanfic. <laughs> Will, where would you be in this... Oh, Compare, if Grace is, like, in space, then I'm, like, I don't know, one of the critters crawling through the grass. So you're down there with Maeve. Yeah. I feel like Will has heard me talk about fanfiction enough that it gets them up to, like, house level. Okay. So my knowledge exclusively comes from Grace. <laughs> True fact. You have a direct line up to fanfic itself. I like that. <laughs> That's good. Before we get started, Maeve had a introduction to fanfic for those of us who are in the bunker like me and know nothing about it. So take it away, Maeve. Okay, so fanfic, it's not just my immortal. It is more than that. Uh, so we're going to get into what it is, the, f- the history of it, um, and why perhaps maybe fanfic could be considered a sacred practice for people who write it, read it, and engage with it. So what is fan fiction? Fan fiction is basically um, a written version of um, an adapted medium. So if you really like a show or if you have problems with the show and you want to work them out um, in some kind of prose or written format, you can take different characters, plot points, um, and kind of bend them to your own imagination, your own will. Fan fiction is always going to be prose. It's always going to be written. And this is different from fan works or transformative works, which can be comics, animated videos, um, something that's edited from the film or series and kind of mashed together, or even like text messages from characters. Thank you, Grace. Grace told me that. So there you go. Just some terminology that we are going to talk about. Uh, you have canon, which is the official story line in which the fan fiction is based on. Um, you can have ship, um, where you're putting two characters together in a romantic and or sexual relationship. However, not all fanfics have to be romantic or sexual. Um, I think this is kind of a mis- misconception about fan fictions in general. And I think uh, 
fanfics that aren't that don't do have like ship or have these kind of relationships are referred to as Jen. So for example, like there's one Harry Potter fanfic where Ginny gets kicked out of all the houses of Hogwarts um, and one where Harry Potter doesn't actually exist. So there's nothing in terms of the characters' relationships, there's nothing romantic going on. But still, this is considered fan fiction because um, again, you're taking these characters and this um, familiar setting and you're kind of twisting it um, for your audience. You can also have alternate universe, which is a deviation from the canon. So. <laughs> For example, there's one fanfic that I found on Tumblr um, where the cast of Merlin is transported to the 1940s and they're all in a detective agency. Some of them like work at a bar and they solve crimes. So that's pretty fun. Uh, you're not within the genre, but you're taking like parts of the characters and you're exploring them through a different setting or a different time. I'm going to use some examples that actually Grace and Will gave me. So Katra and Adora from She-Ra having a child, which I personally would love to see. Maybe Zeta in the 21st century. Also like Penny Dreadful, I would consider is maybe not fanfic, but an alternate universe. You can also have real life fic, which isn't, I guess it's, it's still fiction in the sense that you are creating something from your imagination and it's fictitious, but um, it's not actually like taking characters from a fictional text. Uh, so this is a real life thing. Um, sometimes people can do like self inserts. There's a podcast that I love called Thirst Aid Kit and the hosts will write drabbles where they kind of insert themselves into um, a scenario with like a celebrity or someone that they admire. So the history of fan fiction is a tale as old as time, stretching back to Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, Samson Agonistes. Shout out to John Milton. Shout out to me. Samson Agonistes was my senior thesis and undergrad. Um, even further back than that, you have retellings of martyrs and saints. I'm thinking about Mary Magdalene. She was featured I guess comparatively to other characters in the New Testament, somewhat briefly. And her image was adopted by writers and storytellers, and her story was completely exploded and became this kind of cult-like figure. So I guess this was a way that authors would take the source material and adapt it for an audience. Uh, another example is basically every Arthurian legend ever. So Lord Alfred Tennyson, looking at you, you're actually part of this fanfic culture. And you see the emergence of clubs and writings and this fandom culture during the publication of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes series. Fans would get together, they would write letters to each other to discuss the books, and they would also expand on the original source material and write fanfiction, essentially. Fan fiction magazines and conventions are recorded as early as the 1930s, probably even, even earlier than that, especially considering the Sherlock Holmes' success and interest with fans. And fanfic really boomed with Star Trek in the 1960s. I think people have a hard time kind of understanding what fanfic is if they're not immersed in the culture of it or if they don't actively write or um, read fan fiction. I think they can think that, you know, it's something like My Immortal or it's something that is just silly. But, you know, in terms of the history of fanfic, it's really driven and associated by people who don't feel represented within 
the source text um, by people who wish that they could see themselves in the stories. And so they use characters as avatars or who feel that the characters weren't justly treated or if they feel that there was queer coding going on or queer baiting going on, um, they can explore that more in the way that the text maybe perhaps was reluctant to. For me, when I think about fanfic, it has more to do with representation um, than just kind of like a fantasy, I would say. Um, and there's some resistance to fanfic by the original creators and authors, especially in terms of shipping. So um, it's kind of ironic that <laughs> there was backlash um, for, for shipping Sherlock and Watson for the BBC um, Sherlock show from the 2010s, Stephen Moffat, the creator of that. Uh, was really resistant to shipping to male characters. Um, but I, I feel like it's ironic because this culture <laughs> not, didn't start, but like fandom really grew with the Sherlock Holmes series. And you also have some stars that come out and say like, please don't ship me. But then you also have creators and stars who realize that this is a way that fans can engage with their material and see themselves in a way that the text or the show don't provide. I also think it's a good way for the audience to be resistant to some of the authors and the text itself. They can counter some problematic narratives, they can counter problematic authors. I'm thinking JK Rowling um, in particular right now has so many terrible things that she <laughs> has said and believes in um, have surfaced. I still think that the community has been resistant against those ideas and sticking to the text and really embracing death of the author. Um, so for me, I would say that fanfic is this transformative community building um, way of rereading and retelling a text. And you can find fanfic pretty much anywhere today. It's not just fanfic.net. <laughs> it's not just like live journal. Not that we are really around for live journal, but uh, you know, uh, archive of our own is still out there going strong, fanfic.net, Tumblr. Um, there are actually podcasts dedicated to reading fanfic. There's one I particularly like, um, which is called Fanatical Fic and Where to Find Them, a Harry Potter fanfic podcast. And some fanfiction is explored even in like YouTube series. So PBS has one called It's Lit and there's one called Are They Gay, which is pretty good too. So just getting back to fanfic in terms of representation and it being a means of empowerment within a community, I feel like we gravitate towards text for a reason. And I think when we meditate on characters, I wanna say that it's a sacred practice, writing fanfic, reading fanfic, because you are envisioning a different world where representation can be fruitful and where empowerment can really exist. I would say it's a sacred practice, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more, and maybe you disagree, and that's okay. Uh, so Casper Turkile and Angie Thurston, who have both been related with um, Harvard Divinity School, they wrote this little report called How We Gather, where basically they were looking at this changing uh, culture, this shift in culture where folks are leaving institutions like the church and gravitating towards a more individualized and personalized way of engaging with the sacred. Um, and so they went to CrossFit, um, retreats, yoga, um, all of these different ways that people are creating community and finding the sacred outside of institutions. Um, but all of the places that they investigated have these values of gathering. And those are community, 
valuing and are valuing and fostering deep relationships that center on service to others, personal transformation, making a conscious and dedicated effort to develop one's mind, body, and spirit, social transformation, pursuing justice and beauty in the world through the creation of networks for good, purpose finding, clarifying, articulating, and acting on one's personal mission in life, creativity, allowing time and space to activate the imagination and engage in play, and accountability, holding oneself and others responsible for working towards defined goals. And yeah, I, I feel like fanfic is meant to be shared with others, to take a narrative and transform it. And really, I see all of these um, six values in the larger fanfic community, as I understand it. And as I said, in, in, the, in the sphere that we were talking about, I'm just a little worm wiggling in the grass, but I've seen all of these and I really love fanfic. I love the meditation, I love the representation, and I'm excited to talk more about it with you all. Thank you so much, Maeve. That was such a good initial deep dive into what this world can be. I do have two quick questions for you, maybe for people like me who are in that, in the bunker and didn't know what my immortal was until 20 minutes ago. Would you mind just giving like a brief description of what that is and also what the website that you mentioned was and why those are kind of both important to the fanfic universe? I, I've only read sections of My Immortal because it's pretty bad. People aren't sure if it's parody or if it's a serious fanfic about Harry Potter and they just use these really like dramatic over-the-top language and it's not really well written. It's just kind of absurd. I don't think anyone reads it thinking like, oh, this is the best piece of literature out there. But maybe it is because it is so like thought-provoking and <laughs> has reached so many people across time. But I, I feel like it was just kind of this pivotal work because it's a work that gets people talking about fanfic and creating community literally around this one text that is inspired by Harry Potter. But it's also kind of a text of mockery um, because it's so absurd. So in some ways I feel like it can be used as a weapon to put down fanfic, but it's also a good way to kind of like open the conversation about fanfic. And then archive of our own fanfic.net, these even like Tumblr, um, these are repositories for fanfic submitted by writers, folks. Um, and you can just kind of like doobity-doo search in the bar and <laughs> look up like Harry Potter and Draco Harry, like Dreary, anything that you want to look up. Um, so things are usually like sorted by tags. Uh, so you can look at the rating, whether it's explicit or not. Um, some of the fanfic tropes that you can expect to see, characters. So everything is, I don't know, I wouldn't say everything, but a lot of things are categorized so that people, when they're searching, they know what they're finding. Dang, this is so much more extensive than I ever possibly could have imagined. I have so much to learn, and I'm so excited to be learning from the best. May have mentioned the two different popular websites now, but I um, actually took a class on fan fiction at one point during my undergrad degree um, and thought it might be interesting to say a little more about different formats um, of fic. Right now, um, it's, it's, fan fiction will be primarily hosted online. 
Um, but in the early days of fan fiction, like think Star Trek era, it was primarily run through these things called zines, which is like a fan created magazine where people would kind of write their fic out, maybe type it up and print it kind of themselves or do it by hand. Um, and then distribute it by mailing it or like handing it to somebody at a convention and stuff like that. Um, and then once maybe kind of mid nineties, once it started to become more more popular and more common um, to have personal computers at home and then stuff started moving online. And that was when things really took off. That's my, one of my areas of academic interest. I wrote a paper about it, um, was when things really took off. Um, because this was especially a moment in history when isolated queer folks started to find each other on the internet. And this was largely happening through fan forums. Like people would take a show like Star Trek or Xena Warrior Princess or, or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a show that was queer fans tended to, to be drawn to and they would kind of find each other on, on forums and stuff. And fan fiction started going on um, on these sites that people that were totally fan built. I mean, people were like learning to code so they could build these sites. And some of them would be like author specific, like one of my favorite fic authors, Melissa Good, built her own website and it's just her fic. And some are, are like genre specific or work specific, like there's a million and one sites that just host Xenofic. So that was really popular at that point. And then they started saying, well, why do we have one site for Buffy fic, one site for Xenofic, one site for Star Trek fic? Because some people would want to go in and read multiple. So that's when we got the kind of the Wattpad live journal era, which I actually don't know a ton about. That's not my area of interest necessarily. But those were sites that were designed more to host fix of multiple genres. They weren't super searchable, wasn't great to find, find what you wanted. And at that point, it was created what was supposed to be the one site to host them all. It was going to be fanfiction.net. It was the hot big thing. It was going to be great until it wasn't. See, <laughs> fanfiction.net was great in the sense that it could host fix of any genre, any type. You could go in and you could have, you had your description. There was a rating system where you could, it worked almost like movie rating. Like you could say this was a, um, for general audiences, this is for more mature audiences, you know, and kind of rate what your fan fiction was so you could kind of get what you wanted, which was a really, that was a really cool innovation, which was great. And things were going along really well. Uh, it had some issues. It, <laughs> as somebody who used fanfiction.net back in the day, it, it had some issues. But the big controversy, I guess, was the great fanfiction.net porn purge of like, 2000, oh, Lord have mercy, I don't know when it was, but back, <laughs> a while back, and they decided to get rid of all of the explicit rated fix on the site because they had been super controversial. Some people were reading them when they were underage, and there was a question about the legality of it, and it was a great big mess, and a lot of people left fanfiction.net. Um, it, was, it was this whole thing, and then a bunch of people got together and created what I think is possibly one of the greatest organizations humankind has ever made, which is <laughs> Archive of Our Own, or AO3, which is the holy grail of fan fiction. It's, it's just such a work of love because it's entirely run on donations and volunteer work. There's no ads, no anything. And it solved a lot of the problems of fanfiction.net because it has a truly comprehensive tagging system 
you can find anything you want, filter out anything you don't want. So it, um, there's uh, people, the authors will go in and rate the, um, their fix and say, and they'll put tags and say, this, this fix contains uh, violence and a character death and uh, an animal death or, or whatever it, it does. And if you want to see those things, great. You can say yes. If you don't want to see those things, you don't have to. So it's just truly one of the most just phenomenal things <laughs> that's been ever created. To me, it just shows how much time and energy and passion people are willing to pour into things that they love just to create a community where everyone feels safe and able to find the things they need. It's one of the coolest things that I that I know of because it just it just shows how people are just willing to devote themselves to creating something that they're never going to get any you know there's no fame or money or glory in being a an archive of our of our own volunteer or writer or anything but it's uh, it's it's pretty great so that that's the that's the big one i love that i love what you said the last thing that you said there about just doing it for the joy of doing it i feel like that really sums up fanfic as a whole you're not you know getting any compensation usually for it or any kind of fame or whatever but just because you love it so much and you want to share that with other people. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, I, I one thing that I love to say about fan fiction is that it often starts as a love letter to the canon and it ends as a love letter to the community. Because I think you, a lot of times people will get into it because they're like, oh my gosh, I love Harry Potter. I want to write about Harry Potter. I want to think about Harry Potter. I want to produce content for Harry Potter. And then as you go, you meet people who also love the same things as you, and you meet people who care about the same things as you, and you meet people just across the world who are just so passionate and lovely and wonderful people. And then you have a moment where you realize, I'm not really doing this for Harry Potter anymore. I'm doing this for the people who are reading it and leaving me nice comments, or I'm doing this for the people who this girl who's just came out of the closet and she's 15 and she read this fic and it made her feel better. Like you're doing it for them and not necessarily for, I mean, of course, obviously you still love the, the, the canon or whatever. I have a lot of passion for, for fan fiction. I know you can't hear the, or see this, but we all literally just gasped with affection at Grace's words. That was beautiful. Thank you. That was, yes, that was beautiful. So touching and so moving. Wow, what a good way to put that. Sorry, I'm just like, I just want to soak in what you said because that was just, that was so lovely. Grace, thank you for that. But I would love to just ask you all some quick questions about fanfic and more of your thoughts. Um, but just to kind of, kind of get it started, I would love to know how each of you got into fanfic. Will, would you like to go first? I would love to go first. Okay, so honesty time. My introduction to fanfic was extremely negative. Um, it was through um, the whole Wattpad era. I was in middle school, so of course everyone was writing like horny fanfic. But a lot of it was like real life stuff um a lot of in self-insertion which is fine um they it started as like members of one direction things like that 
then it got into real people, like actual people in these people's lives. I found that problematic, like writing fairly sexual content about someone without their consent. But <laughs> as I moved on from that time, um, I got more into fan works. So not exactly like prose fiction, but um, people were writing, I don't know, a big one is comics for me. <laughs> like these fan artists would write comics about basically anything. It's kind of a global phenomena, which interested me. Fans from all over the world were writing about the same characters and had different ideas, even bringing them into their own cultures, which is fascinating to me. And so it started like that. And of course, it's easy to transition from fan works into fan fiction. And I found actually like a good side of the community that wasn't creepy middle schoolers being weird. That's awesome. I love how even though it started off kind of like a rocky relationship, you still were able to find some elements that still attracted you, you know, like you weren't totally repulsed by the whole thing, given your <laughs> given your experience. But the more I hear from all of you, the more I am realizing that I just missed an entire <laughs> portion of like my middle school life. I just don't think the people that I hung out with were into fanfic at all. I don't know. I feel like middle school Sarah definitely would have been into fanfic. Gosh. Anyway, Grace, I would love to hear your introduction into this wild and crazy world of fanfic. Oh, yeah. my It's actually a little funny. I, so I first stumbled into the world of fanfiction completely on accident. I was I was deeply in my Harry Potter phase when I was maybe about 14. And I had read all the books. I was so desperate to find other content, find people talking about Harry Potter, thinking about Harry Potter. I don't even remember how I first encountered fan fiction, but I think I was, must have just been a random Google search. So I was just kind of looking for things. And <laughs> funny story, when I first encountered fan fiction, I thought it was illegal. <laughs> I, um, because there's, I was, I was primarily reading on fanfiction.net and especially on fanfiction.net, it's really, really common and actually encouraged to start with these lengthy disclaimers that's like, please know I, I don't own these characters, I don't own these works, or whatever, as kind of a protective thing, because back in the day, I mean, I guess it could still happen, but it was more frequent in the early 2000s, I guess, people were getting sued by authors for copyright infringe, uh, infringement, um, which is a whole legal thing that I won't get into, but I really legitimately thought that it was illegal to read fanfic. <laughs> So I was like using incognito browsers and like, and uh, it, it got to the point where I had such a sense of shame about it that I never told a single solitary soul that I had read fan fiction until my sophomore year of college. <laughs> um, so that was my introduction. It was a little, <laughs> it was a little rambunctious. I didn't really, really get into it until I started, until I discovered Xena Warrior Princess. Which is, which is, I think, I think what everyone knows is my one true love of television. Um, it's one that's um, a show that was, uh, it ran for six seasons from 1995 to 2001. Um, 
And it was one of the first television shows that became incredibly, incredibly popular around, um, among queer women. Um, and it also existed at the era right when having personal computers at home was becoming way more common. It was right in that like late 90s, early 2000s era. So um, when I first watched Xena, it it changed my life. I mean, I was this little, um, I was this little gay child in the rural South who'd never encountered queer women before, ever. Uh, and then suddenly I found myself going online and finding these just whole communities of people who'd written like novel length works about, about queer women. And I have written multiple papers on Xena fanfiction that I won't bore you with, but it's a truly phenomenal um, group of people um, and a really, just a really fascinating phenomenon that this one show turned. I mean, when I say novel length, I really mean novel length. <laughs> and, uh, and people going on and, um, and, and writing about something they loved and writing about, in a sense, writing a story about two women who love each other over and over and ever, for, forever and ever, amen. I mean, it was um, truly glorious for a 15-year-old baby lesbian to read. Uh, and it really, I often joke that I would have dropped out of high school if not for Xena fan fiction. And <laughs> it's a joke, but it's also a little bit true. Uh, it really uh, means a lot to me. Thank you for that. I, <laughs> I love that you thought it was illegal. And <laughs> that, that cracked me up. Oh my gosh. That is so funny. You both mentioned or hinted at what kind of fanfic that you look for or what what you like to read what do you look for in a good fanfic and what do you like to see in it so for me the first thing probably is if there's any like annoying queer baiting or anything like that obviously we got to fix that (laughs) so (laughs) that's usually the first thing one of my all-time favorites is whenever two characters like confess their love to each other and then one of them like instantly dies that's always great um because what are you supposed to do with that other than write about it so um that's definitely the first thing especially when it's hinted at that there might be like a trans or questioning character I don't know I think that's really interesting to explore and second I kind of just like it to be fun (laughs) any kind of actiony thing or even I especially love Monster of the Week series because they're great. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, (laughs) So those are actually super easy to write fan fiction about because you're just adding another monster. Um, And so I've always really enjoyed reading comics, actual fix, anything like that about Monster of the Week stuff, just adding that extra encounter there. That's always fun. Yes, we love Monster of the Week stuff here. Grace, what about you? What do you look for? Anything similar? Oh, absolutely. Well, I totally agree with with Will. Monster of the Week is super fun. Um, so I, I'm I'm gonna say almost exclusively read <laughs> read um, romances about queer women. Um, and to be honest, most of it is still Xena. <laughs> I've never quite, I've never quite grown past being 15. Um, my favorites are always the ones that, that are 
just obscenely long. I mean, I've read fics that have gone on for literally like 500 pages because um, it really gives you a chance to get to know the characters well. I tend not to go for a lot of angst. I mean, and some people feel incredibly differently and that's totally fine. But in my life, I, you know, I grew up queer in the rural South and, and my fan fiction taste were formed in that era. And I wanted to read about gay women who loved each other and were really happy and had a great time. <laughs> and it's, it's funny because I've, I've moved beyond that a little bit now. I'm willing to read a little bit more angst. Um, but that was, and it's, it's a little, it's a little childish, I guess, but I still deeply enjoy that. Um, and as far as what makes a good fan fiction, so many things. I mean, I love good, good characterization is great. I love when you read uh, a, a good fic that will do interesting things with the characters. Like they'll take one throwaway line from a character back in like season two of a 12 season show and be like, what did this mean? And how did this play out? And you totally could see the people wrestling with these problems. Will will tell you I talk all the time about how I love interesting character work. I care far more about that than about plot. I think that makes a, for a good fic. For what makes an interesting fic, I really like ones that give you something that you didn't get in the source material. So like if you, for instance, you'll take a show that's really hardcore and angsty and heavy on violence, and send them to Ikea or like take a <laughs> or like take a show that's really goofy and happy and funny and and th throw them some angst and see how they deal with it or, or something like that um, or take a show that's just just dumb and ridiculous and it's just like your guilty pleasure show and are like let me just write a super dramatic pseudo-Victorian novel about these people, you know, it's, it's, it's really fun. So I always think that those are the ones that, um, that really in, hold my interest, I guess, um, I would, I would say. Maeve, I saw you <laughs> nodding enthusiastically. I would love to hear all of your thoughts and what, what draws you yeah. into a, a fanfic. Yeah, I don't know. It depends. I'm really a dialogue-driven person. Like, in general, I really like reading plays and, like, I think, like Grace was saying, plot does not matter to me. Like, as long as there's good characterization, Will's rolling their eyes. But, like, <laughs> I don't know. I think you can take any character and put them in any kind of, like, era or setting. And as long as the dialogue is snappy and both, like, true to what we've seen about the character, but also, like, messing with it a little bit. I love that. I also am kind of like, I don't know, big into the angst. Like, I want the tears and the drama and the crying <laughs> and the forbidden romance. I'm also really just like, I don't know, big into any kind of supernatural element. So I don't know, throw in a werewolf or throw in some kind of ghosty and I'm there for it. Uh, but also I really like like domestic fics. So I don't know, just give me the characters from Buffy like all making bread together. And I'm like, this is perfect. That's all I need. <laughs> Oh my god. See, I'm okay with the angst as long as it's followed up by like 50 pages of hugging. <laughs> this is very good. That's right on brand for you, Grace. So what I feel like I'm hearing from all three of you is that when there seems to be like a hole or something missing from general media, you know, whatever it is, then people kind of feel that, fill that gap, whether it's for you know, like Grace mentioned, for their own personal entertainment or for their group of friends or community at large. 
But something that I, I think about when it comes to media is the Bechdel test, which if people don't know, it's a measure of the representation of women in fiction. And according to Wikipedia, it asks whether a work features at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. The requirement that the two women must be named is sometimes added. And it seems that from the works that all of you have mentioned that it definitely does because there's a lot of representation and it's not just about, you know, these women chasing after this guy who is subpar usually. <laughs> but, you know, like so often media doesn't, doesn't pass the Bechdel test, but does fanfic since the majority of the creators are not cis men, which is something that Grace has mentioned before, but I don't think necessarily on this podcast. So would love to just open that up for you all. So I definitely think that it is more common in fix, but there is a risk. And I think that is, there's the risk of like overcorrection so that you end up getting like two women talking bad about one man. I've read so many things that it's like, oh, this is a feminist work, except the antagonist is a man. So that's all they talk about. <laughs> it's um, instead of a women-driven story, then it becomes women-driven story that is also driven by a man. So the characters might be women, but the actual plot is driven by a man. I don't know. I think there is that risk, but it definitely is more common to pass the Bechdel test for fix. I think, too, Will, something that you mentioned earlier is that there's a lot more representation when it comes to transgender or gender nonconforming folks in fanfic. So it's like the Bechdel test doesn't even go far enough for some fanfic because it, it, it still kind of maintains that, that gender binary and only looks at work through that lens. Yeah, so this was actually something that I didn't think about before, but some of the shows that I really do love happen to be male-driven, so I'm thinking like, well, maybe not love, but ones that have been super impactful for me, and as just like a kid on the internet, <laughs> just a kid on the internet, uh, and I'm thinking particularly that these are the shows that also have a lot of fanfic written about them, and so those happen to be um, Supernatural, Sherlock, and Merlin, and a lot of the people that write those fics, and I can't say this like 100%, I don't have the data, but they seem to be women or um, queer folks who are interested in exploring these relationships that we see on screen that are never fulfilled in the show. Um, it's so often alluded to that like, oh, Dean and Castiel are a thing, or like obviously like Sherlock and Watson are a thing, or Merlin and Arthur. And it's there and the creators do these little like breadcrumbs but they're never fulfilled and then the creators will often be like well it's like a platonic relationship it's not it's love but not in the way you're thinking like you deviant fool um and i was thinking like why is that and like why because there are female characters in all of those shows and they are like feminist badass independent amazing with their own nuances and complications but i think this is something I'm going to credit Grace with because this is what she said that um, when we were talking about this earlier, that it's so often that the male characters are the ones that are the most fleshed out, that are at the center of attention. And so when you have this coupling of like this queer baiting, but then also these are the characters that are the most interesting and the most nuanced and ones that, um, you know, really resonate with the viewers. It makes sense for me that you would want to ship 
these two characters, like especially if they're um, like both men or they mo- both identify as men. Yeah, this was something that Grace said that one of the most popular categories on any fanfic site is going to be where um, writers are shipping two male characters. And so, yeah, it just makes all the sense to me that because there isn't fantastic representation or at least fleshing out of female characters and because shows have set up deeply intense relationships with male characters that it makes sense that like one it's not going to pass the Bechdel test but I don't know if that's necessarily what some writers are looking for though I think they're looking for some kind of representation and it doesn't matter I think it does matter gender and and race and background and all of these other factors. But I think what characters really want or what authors really want is to see themselves represented and see a fulfillment of what the creators have set up. Yeah, uh, Maeve, that absolutely makes sense. And I um, I actually, I don't have a ton more to add, but I did just want to um, throw in, while all of y'all were, in, were talking, I just quickly pulled up the, the AO3 stats page, which is, honestly an incredible way to kill an hour or two if anybody ever <laughs> ever wants to to look at that so obviously I, I mentioned 500 million different fanfics and hosting sites that exist and so just looking at archive of our own will never be exhaustive um but archive of our own actually publishes data on um they do a census every year and and get information from the authors of fic um, and ask about gender identity, ask about race, ask about age, stuff like that. And they also do a, um, it's actually super fun, they do a, a top ships thing of every year and list out all of the top ships, how much, and it's fascinating because they'll tag them by how many fics were written for that ship, how many were written of you know, interracial relationships or queer relationships and, and stuff like that. And it does a whole bunch of data. So that's a lot of fun. And I won't go through and read them all. But the, the thing that I think are relevant is that in, and the last one I found was 2013. I know they've done stuff beyond that. But in 2013, 80% of the, of the authors on Archive of Our Own identified as female. Uh, the next highest category is genderqueer. That's 6%. And then there's several different gender identities that have one or two percent. Male is only four percent. Like cis male is only four percent. And again, that's just archive of our own, and that's just 2013. But it's it's kind of as representative. And then if you look at all of their top, I've been going through their top ships list for the last like 10 years. It's almost all male male. That is their their top ships, which I think is fascinating because that means that we have obviously women writing about two men, which is a really, really cool thing to do. And I think a lot of that points towards what Mae was saying about want to explore some of those relationships that exist in canon, but that aren't fleshed out in the way that people would like them to be, um, which I think is really fascinating. It's really cool. And there's actually the people who study fan fiction, which it exists, <laughs> there's papers about it, it's great, Are have, have been baffled by this for years. Um, I think a lot of people originally back in the day would, would theorize that this was because straight women want to objectify men or whatever. And of course that could be part of it, but it's also fascinating because fan fiction authors are often overwhelmingly queer. So I, I would poke some holes as to whether it's just a way to objectify men necessarily. I, I think it's kind of goes to show that a lot of our favorite television shows 
frankly don't have two women in them that would be likely to want to write fan fiction about. <laughs> Think of, you know, a lot of the most viewed shows of the last 10 years, most of them, you're lucky if you have one woman with a lot of speaking lines in, in any given episode, or if it's a book, you know, in any given book or whatever. So I think a lot of it might just be because people love to, I mean, especially people who love characterization, like me and Maeve, love to play with those really cool, uh, well-fleshed-out, interesting characters. Um, and so I think that in some ways, fan fiction may just be reflecting back on the source material. Um, and of course, that can't that can't cover every single aspect of why these stats exist. But I, I think it's something really interesting to think about, um, a way to kind of hold up a mirror to the canon. Um, and if we go back to the Bechdel test and how we were talking about how it's not necessarily a perfect metric, especially in such a queer-focused medium, something that's more interesting to me obviously stories about strong women are interesting and great but in fan fiction a lot of what people are looking for is kind of a queer Bechdel test which is two queer people talking about something other than their queerness like two men falling in love and not being like oh but it's wrong they actually are just falling in love and being normal human beings without having to have all this extra angst added on. Like, the plot does not need to be driven by their queerness. And I think that is an important distinction. And that's something I look for. I definitely prefer when the plot is external and we're not worried about, oh, but what about our families? That's been done on mainstream canon a lot. And that's the only thing the two characters talk about. I want to see queer people being real people. Absolutely. I'm really glad that you brought that up and, and expanded it. I think that's so important. I think we've talked about sexuality and gender a lot, which is good. But I'm also wondering about, and Grace and, and Maeve, you both mentioned race, but where, where does race and even disability come in um, in terms of fanfic? I think what's most important to me is that you have this like basis of the characters that you adapt from the text or from the source. But I think you can play with them in any way that you want in order to represent them. And this is something that has been said a lot, but like Hermione's characterization, you can take Hermione's character and she's often been written about, or at least the way that I've seen her depicted in some fan works is as of a person of color, like, or as a black woman. Um, and so I think there are ways that just because the text isn't explicitly like, this is this person's race, this is their gender identity, this is their ability, <laughs> or this is their class. I think because if that is omitted, then that gives you more freedom to take a character and personalize it. But it's also like, what matters most to me is that I have the essence of the character's nature. Everything else is at will, you know? Not will, but will at like volition <laughs> of, of the writer and of the of the world that they're inhabiting. So I, I don't know. I feel like I could see Hermione as a queer disabled black woman and that's not canon, but like, sure, that that is who she could be. And because that's not explicit, explicitly stated in the text, but even if it is, it's like as the writer, I have the freedom to take this essence of the character and make her into what I what I want her to be. And I think there's an important distinction there with, especially with that Hermione example, Hermione makes sense to be those things. But I think a lot of 
the trap people fall in is like kind of the whole gender swap thing, which is fine. And I actually sometimes enjoy those, but it's like, if that's the entire, the entire reason is just, wouldn't it be cool if, I think that can be not as, not as meaningful, I think, as saying, well, Hermione could easily be on the spectrum. So why don't we put her on there and see what happens? Especially because that fits with the essence of who she is. Yeah, I I would definitely say that I think racism in fandom doesn't get talked about enough, and it really should. So th- what's interesting about, about fanfiction is that you essentially get handed a box from the canon, and you have to unpack it and figure out what you're going to do with it. So sometimes you get these really... A great, well-written, interesting characters, and you get to say wonderful and run with it. And sometimes you get handed characters that, frankly, are are racist or ableist or sexist caricatures. And uh, the author has to kind of take on that challenge of saying, either I kind of run with it and don't do a lot to to undo this this issue, or I can kind of try to transform this character and try to make this character into something more meaningful. But then, of course, you also have to acknowledge that fandom is by far not perfect, and it can go the opposite way. For instance, and if anyone if anyone listening knows anything about Spider Man, please forgive me because I do not. But it's a perfect example. So one one example that I think works really well is that um, in the most recent animated Spider-Man movie with, with Miles Morales, it was, it was a super good movie. Um, and I don't even like, I don't even like Spider-Man, but I thought it was great. People were obviously writing a lot of fic about that movie. And it became weirdly prevalent that in that fic, that, and this is, is an example of racist, racist undertone that didn't come from the source material. People would write a lot about Miles, like, stealing art supplies and, like, uh, doing, breaking the law a lot and, like, doing all this this, I mean, and, and it varied from fic to fic, but doing all this stuff that wasn't really in the source material, so you can't blame it on the source material, and also, frankly, was not part of the character of every other Spider-Man, you know, like, we had all these, like, nerdy white Spider-Men who, you know, a lot of the fic written about them would be, oh, they're such a nerd, or they would don't even want to leave their house, or they whatever, and then suddenly, uh, fandom gets handed a, a Black version of Spider-Man, and suddenly we're characterizing that person as a person who is committing all these crimes and and stuff. And you just kind of have to, as an author and as a reader, you kind of just have to critically evaluate where some of the stuff is coming from um, and and whether there's a a bias on the part of of the creator or on the part of the fans um, and stuff like that. So I think um, often, and, and one of the things I love about fandom is that it gives you an opportunity to really play with what you're given and to kind of try a bunch of different things and see what works which is great, but I think you just have to acknowledge that everyone on this earth has some kind of bias. Um, and that every time you pick up a pen or sit down at your computer, you're kind of inserting some of your own bias. Um, and often fandom has the reputation of being like, oh, we're gonna take out everything we don't like from the original material and make it great and make it perfect and it will never be homophobic and it will never be sexist and it will never be racist. But I think you always just kind of have to acknowledge that it, it's people with with biases and frankly people who don't typically have the benefit of editors <laughs> um, and people kind of and and don't always have the benefit of somebody reading it over and saying hold on a minute before you before you publish 
Um, so I think you, you just have to think a lot about um, how, how people's biases go into it. Thank you for, for addressing that. Switching gears now um, and getting more into a spiritual or, or religious frame of mind. We've talked on the show before and even in this episode, Maeve brought it up, about how we can read religious texts as sacred. So I have a two-part question for you all. What is sacred to you, and how or why could fanfic be read in a sacred way? Yeah, when I was reading the report that Casper Turkile and Angie Thurston did, How We Gather, just reading the values of gathering really reminded me of fan fiction. Um, and I think it's been present in my mind during the pandemic. I've been reading more of it and getting more immersed, especially as I've been, you know, finding new content and revisiting old shows. But I think for me, it's sacred in the sense that I, I have the chance to watch something or read something and internalize it. I can meditate on it, really think through what the character's motivations are, who they are as people, what guides them, and, you know, think about questions of good and evil, of intentions. And of course, like I said, I do like fix where people are just like bacon bread in their kitchen. <laughs> but I think you can also pull apart some of what is presented to you in the show that you're watching or the text that you're reading, how that goes with or goes against your own morals or your own perception of the world, meditate on it. And then I think fanfic and fiction in general, I mean, as I said, I think in the last episode, it's an empathetic medium. So you can channel, I guess, your life into this text or this thing that you're creating in a way that I feel like is meditative because you are, you're taking bits of your own life, of the life of the people around you and these characters within this piece of fiction that you're consuming. And then you can also make it into what you want it to be and to maybe adjust a more equitable world. I mean, I, I think something that I forgot to mention in the last question that we were talking about is that white often seems to be the default. Um, just thinking about Hermione, I think I said something like, well, she could be, you know, assuming that Hermione is a white character. And so I think for people who have identities that aren't often represented in the mainstream, that this is a sacred and revolutionary practice so that whoever is creating this this work based on the source material can envision a life where they are i guess fully represented using characters as a as an avatar or even just like seeing these characters be fulfilled in a way that they're not in a way that is unjust in terms of how they're portrayed i i think it's it's meditative and it's also revolutionary um for me i think a big part of it, like Maeve was talking about, is community. I think that's super important. I mean, all the major good spiritual slash religious experiences I've had have been community-based. But I also think there's something to be said for creation. I think creation in and of itself is like a very spiritual act, especially if you believe in a creator, you are emulating that creator. There's actually a quote by one of the leaders of the Baha'i faith, Abdul Baha. <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's like a Persian religion. So a friend was sending a letter to this leader and he said, I feel like my painting is sacrilegious because I'm imitating God. 
And he responded, I rejoice to hear that thou takest pains with thine art, for in this wonderful new age, art is worship. The more thou strivest to perfect it, the closer wilt thou become to God. What bestowal could be greater than this, that one's art should be even as the act of worshiping the Lord? That is to say, when thy fingers grasp the paintbrush, it is as if thou wert out, wert at prayer in the temple. I don't know, that quote always stuck with me. I read it in um, Rain Wilson's autobiography, The Bassoon King. Check it out. It's great. That really stuck with me, especially because I'm a like creative, artsy person, or try to be. It's, it's really important to me that I bring spirituality into as many aspects of my life as possible because I don't enjoy the more traditional forms of worship. That's really where it kicks in for me is in the creation and interpretation aspect. I've never heard that quote before, but I really like it. And I think that's a really lovely point. So thank you, Will. Well, y'all really said a lot of what I what I wanted to say. Um, I, I think it's funny that we all think in kind of similar ways sometimes. I am also really interested in both the community and the um, and the creativity aspects. I love I love the idea of a community in which there is no entry fee. I think at its best. And again, I've also seen fandom at its worst. So <laughs> trust me when I say that I know it's not always true. Being a part of a fandom pretty much just means that you come from a place of love for the same material. In, in the same way that I, perhaps it's an odd comparison, but that's often how, how I think of my religion in, in this idea that it's a group of people who are coming together out of this just shared love for, for a thing, you know, and it could be anything. And I, I, again, I'm not trying to equate the two, but I think it's, um, I think it's really, really lovely. Sometimes, sometimes when I'm feeling down on humanity, I go and read the comments on fan fiction because it's just, it's just universally, oh my gosh, I love this. I love you. I think you're great. <laughs> um, it's just an outpouring of devotion to, to the material and to each other, um, which I think there's something kind of, kind of holy there. And I think perhaps even more so for me, as I've gotten older, I have become incredibly attached to the idea of, of faith as transformative um, and to the idea of a faith that can change you and the world around you and the people you interact with. Um, and I think back to, um, in fact, uh, uh, fan works are also referred to as, as, the name I like better is uh, transformative works um, in the sense that it's um, works as videos and fictions and comics and art that in a sense takes what it's given, the, the canon of the show or the movie or the book, and transforms it into, and, and, and perhaps in, in funny and silly and ridiculous ways, like, you know, let's send Spock to Hogwarts or whatever. It's the idea of taking something that you love and looking at it in new and interesting ways that speak to you on a different and a deeper level. And, and you know, maybe Spock in Hogwarts is going to show me new elements of Spock and new elements of, of Hogwarts that I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. I, I don't know if I've mentioned, but I'm currently-ish in seminary. And I've realized that the way I read fan fiction and the way I read 
source material in order to write fan fiction has started to influence the way I read the Bible. <laughs> like, I think, it, I think it's really fascinating to take source material and, and not just look at it and accept it and say, okay, great, here it is, it's on a page, that's wonderful, but to look at it and say, as though you were about to write a fic about it, and say, I want to get in these characters' heads, and I want to think, they're in this scenario, what are they doing? But if this was a different scenario, how would that change things? And you know, this person said this and we often villainize them, but what if they have a backstory we didn't know about? <laughs> and it kind of, I think, I think it can kind of transform your view of, of sacred works if you, if you kind of think about it in this way that's um, not necessarily evaluative, but that, that's transformative, that you want to think about um, how would this play differently in a, in a different society or, or whatever, which I think is something that, that honestly, fan fiction really trains you to do, is to think of things slightly to the left, you know, <laughs> if you were gonna, if you were gonna take something and be like, what if I threw them a curveball and something different happened? I, I think it can be a really interesting analytical tool, but also a really interesting creative tool to, to think things through. I mean, and this really goes back to what Will was saying. I strongly believe in God as a creator. And at the same time, I believe that we as human beings are called to create. And I believe that the act of creation is a sacred act. And so I believe that, that fan fiction as an act of creativity, as an act of community building, as an act of transformation, can at its best be a holy and sacred and, and beautiful thing. Besides uh, this, I, I really, I really love. Um, so I, I think you can tell I've, I've come a long way from conceptualizing fan fiction as something illegal, um, <laughs> just something that can really be, um, in a sense, kind of foundational uh, to, to, I think, who I am as a person and to how I view the world around me and perhaps even to how I relate to other people and to God. I think it, I think it's really changed or transformed, perhaps. Grace, I love that. And the part where you said that reading fanfic has changed how you read the Bible reminded me an HDS uh, person named Jade Sylvan made a queer biblical musical called Beloved King about David and Jonathan. Unfortunately, like we couldn't see it because um, pandemic and it was scheduled to be released or performed in March. So, but yeah, I mean, Paradise Lost is fanfic. Now we have Beloved King, which is just incredible. So yeah, I, I relate. I relate with that sentiment. I have one last question for you all. It's a more fun and imaginative kind of question. It goes in nicely with what Maeve just mentioned about the play that someone worked on and how there, there is actually a long tradition of biblical and re religious fanfic. I think possibly, I don't know if this is the most, maybe the most recognized, I would say is the, the Midrash as could be considered as a sacred fanfic. According to Wikipedia, again, our favorite source for all knowledge on God's green earth, Midrash and rabbinic readings, quote, discern value in texts, words, and letters as potential revelatory spaces. And Wilda C. Gaffney, a Hebrew scholar, writes, they imagine dominant narratival readings while crafting new ones to stand alongside, not replace former readings. Midrash also asks questions of the text. Sometimes it provides answers, sometimes it leaves the reader to answer the questions. So I think that really, you know, pairs nicely with 
what all of you have been saying about how it it, it kind of um, influences your connection with with the sacred. So my last question for you then is, if you could rewrite something in the Bible, what would it be, why, and what would it look like? I am so pumped for <laughs> what I'm about to hear. I can I already know it's going to be amazing. Okay, I have a serious answer and a joke answer. I'll, <laughs> I'll say the serious answer first. Okay, my serious answer is that I think I would want to do what fanfiction does best and take all of the women and give them names and, 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 and like, and, and so, okay, I mean, in a very serious sense, I think, I mean, and again, I'm PG USA, so this won't hold for all denominations, but I really believe in a Bible that was inspired by God and written by people, uh, much in the way that the fan fiction is, these people have their own biases, and they have their own priorities, and they have their things that they wanted to convey, and unfortunately, a lot of the things that these people wanted to convey didn't have a whole lot to do with women. <laughs> so I, um, I think I would really love to go in and just get rewrite from a different point of view. Like, what if we just took a whole gospel and rewrote it from Mary Magdalene's point of view or something? <laughs> I'll, um, anyway, I think that could be that could be really cool. And um, oh, what, I feel like I've said the the word transformative 500 times in the last 10 minutes, but I think it would be really cool, um, to do that, um, and there might be some of the sort of extra canonical gospels that touch on that. Actually, I'm almost certain there are, but, um, extra canonical gospels are super cool. There's a whole website where you can read them all. It's great. Um, there's one where baby Jesus has a pet leopard. It's wonderful, but anyway, <laughs> but my, my joke answer is that, um, when I was a <laughs> like maybe maybe like fifth grade or something not like really little but I had this weird fixation on that story where Jesus curses a fig tree like there's this story where like Jesus like I don't even know I don't remember it there's a, a fig tree and it doesn't have figs on it and Jesus is like ah oh, fig tree you're awful and I did not get it like to the point where it really bothered me and I would ask about it in like every single week Sunday school and they would be like okay we're officially banning all fig related questions for the next <laughs> for the foreseeable future because I was just so upset about it because I could not understand why Jesus would have cursed a fig tree did it make sense I did not like it um and so I think I think I mean and of course someone's probably gonna text me and be like that's my favorite story in the whole bible but I would revise that <laughs> and finally finally give 10 year old baby grace some answers like I would I would definitively be like here is the answer to why these occurs a fig tree um so there you go like maybe the fig tree insulted him and Jesus was just like not today fig tree <laughs> <laughs> honestly anything anything I would take <laughs> One of my favorite things ever is Grace. When I went to Tizay this spring, shout out. With me. With Sarah. Um, Grace gave me a book called Queering Lent um, by Slats, who is a genderqueer theologian slash minister, preacher. Probably the thing that stuck out to me most from that book was 
there was like a shift in analogies. So a lot of times when I hear analogies for God, because clearly we can't understand the relationship or whatever, but it's always like God is Lord, God is King, God is even Dad. <laughs> um, I've never really liked those analogies. They they never really vibed with me. Slats wrote about God as lover. Like that was the big analogy. Um, and I know that's not an original idea and it's been done before, but I would like to see, especially things like the Abrahamic and like Jacobian sagas rewritten from that perspective. So rather than God being like big booming voice, go do this. It's more of an intimate relationship that they have. Um, I think that could be really interesting and shed a lot of new light on behaviors and everything. I don't know. Could be interesting. I like that because especially the mystics is are kind of known for that, like especially women mystics, especially who is it? St. Saint Teresa, Maeve. She she's always always thinking of God as as her beloved and how they're in in, in an intimate partnership with one another. So, I think there's uh definitely some religious grounds for you to wade through in that will. I think you have a lot a lot to work with. I can't wait for for it to be published. <laughs> All right, Maeve, let's hear it. Well, of course I would choose Queen Esther. The best VeggieTales episode is the Esther episode, <laughs> which is reminding me, VeggieTales is fan work, isn't it? Am, am I wrong? Yes. Am I wrong? <laughs> I can't That's believe so right. we've been talking for nearly an hour and a half and haven't even mentioned VeggieTales. I oh think my gosh, I love VeggieTales. We're going to have to start over. <laughs> Esther was my favorite. Esther was the best one. <laughs> so good. And it's more of a secular text, so I feel like it would fit well into, like, I'm thinking, like, a modern adaptation. I'd also love to see something done with the prophets, and I feel like that would be really, like, timely now. Um, oh, the hemorrhaging woman in the New Testament going up to Jesus, too, from her perspective. So many possibilities. Wow. What Absolutely. about you, Sarah? Oh, gosh. Something that I, I've learned recently and would love to get more get it more fleshed out, I guess, kind of in the same way of, of grace as well and all of yours, is this idea that the word for Joseph's amazing technicolor dream coat is actually the same word that's used to describe like a princess gown. And so the fact that they didn't like him was in connection to the fact that he was, you know, kind of like gender queer and gender nonconforming. So I would love to hear more about that. And I, yeah. I think that would be a good one. Okay. I <laughs> love gender nonconforming Bible people, and I have a whole book on it, and we should talk about it. That should be the next podcast. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Let's do it. I think I, that'd be really fascinating, especially when you think of it in terms of, like, how, like, he didn't want to sleep with Herod, what's his name? Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife, yeah. And, like, not necessarily because it was you know, legal or adultery, but because he was, he was gay. Yeah. Okay. Gay. I wrote a paper about this too. <laughs> I think I, I agree with you. This is way off topic, but I think that Joseph is probably one of the queerest characters in the Bible and possibly the world. It's, it's just, I, oh my gosh, it's truly fascinating and incredibly off topic, but yes, I <laughs> go team Sarah. Oh, geez. It has 
truly been a pleasure to see all of your faces and hear all of your thoughts. I am infinitely grateful for you all. Thank we you for you. being oh, on yeah. Mystics and Mulder. <laughs> oh, we are infinitely grateful for you. Wow, this has been oh, the most fun I've ever had sitting in the floor of my parents' room. This has been a hoot and a half, if I do say so myself. Oh, man. Might even toss a holler in there. <laughs> a hoot and a holler? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Better watch out. Might be too rowdy. Special thanks to Motion, M-O-S-H-U-N, for our intro and outro music. You can find them on Spotify and other music streaming platforms. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Mystics and Molder, as well as email. Yes, we have an email as well as a fantastic Tumblr. Uh, We also have a website where you can find us on uh, the interwebs. Incredible. So thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.